Welcome back to What They Aren't Telling You with Melissa Floyd. Today is another continuation of an episode speaking with a nurse, discussing part of this series that we're looking at the pandemic, looking at the situation that we're in right now, and talking with people who really know about all of this, the people whose voices have not really been heard to the extent that they should have. So today, this is going to be nurse number four, and she is choosing not to be anonymous on this, and she will explain why she's involved in some really interesting things that I think those of you in New York that are listening will want to maybe get involved in. Her name is Chelsea Patton. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And in all full disclosure, she's like, wait, who are you and why am I doing this? (laughs) Because she was referred to this by a friend who thought she would be a really good addition to this series of interviews that I'm doing. So just in case anybody's wondering, these are not just people who are fans and followers of me. This is just getting a sampling of who is out there that has experience and knowledge and a skill set here to share with everybody and their viewpoint on what's been going on. And so I'll start, Chelsea, with the first question kind of asking about exactly that. What is your medical background? What is your nursing background? What niche do you kind of work in now? And what is your involvement as it relates to all of the medical stuff in general? And we'll talk later about how that affects what's going on now. Yeah, my name is Chelsea Patton. I'm a registered nurse. I have been a registered nurse for seven years. I work at a major hospital in the Hudson Valley in New York. I currently work on the surgical unit And that's where I've done most of my nursing. I have done, you know, other units and dabbled here and there and other things, but that's basically my primary setting is where I've done my career. Great. And New York, obviously, you know, has just been such the center, at least for our country, the center of all of this starting back early in March of last year. And I'm going to get into some stuff as it relates to that. But my first question, this is kind of an overview question. In your medical opinion, your, you know, like I said, your experience and your skill sets that have led you to this point, in your medical opinion, is the fear that has been created over this last year, and and for some it's still continuing, has that fear, in your opinion, been warranted? No. And why not? Well... I guess it depends on how you perceive fear personally, I guess, and professionally. I have worked when surgery shut down in New York State. Obviously, us nurses were available to work the COVID unit. So my unit got turned into the COVID unit for about nine months. Again, it was a medical surgical COVID. It wasn't ICU COVID. So I can't really speak on that. I can only speak from my perspective for med surge. You know, the people that we've seen pass were basically a lot of elderly, a lot of comorbidities, immunocompromised, I hate to say it, but group homes, nursing homes, those type of people that aren't really out and about in the general public all the time. Not as much as like a, you know, healthier individual um, per se. And so did you think that as we all kind of responded to all of this, in those early months, and again, still after that fact, do you think that the media has been basically pushing fear that the data and the actual real world risk or experience is not really supporting? Oh, absolutely. And I'll say that because back in November of, what was it, 2019? When did the pandemic break out? 2020, right? Mm -hmm. So November 2019, 
we were seeing a lot of people like in the emergency rooms with uh, flu-like symptoms and nobody knew what it was because everybody's flu was negative. I mean, not everybody, but the majority who came in with these symptoms, they were flu negative and we're like, what's going on with this is so weird. Like, you know, everyone was like, what's going on? What's going on? And that lasted all winter that winter. And we didn't see the kind of death that we saw, you know, when the official pandemic broke out. I personally have had one of my family members who was very, very sick, like very sick in January of 2020, again, before the official pandemic broke out. My family member was sick for three weeks. And this person, you know, would get sick like that for maybe two or three days if they caught a virus or whatever. And then they would bounce right back. And I'm like, this is so strange, very worried about, you know, my family member. And, you know, later on, I was like, wow, you know, I think you had COVID, you know, now that everything, you know, came to be. And, you know, my family member was like, yeah, I definitely think I did. And I was like, wow. So again, we weren't seeing the kind of deaths from these flu-like symptoms that we were when the official pandemic, you know, broke out. And so what do you think then that was attributed to once all of a sudden these the death recording or this reporting of numbers started to come in with the same symptoms that people had been seeing for five months prior? What was the difference then? So fear, and I'll tell you why. Basically, when the pandemic broke out and the hospitals, you know, we had to prepare for this, everybody was more worried about personal protective equipment as opposed to the patients themselves. So it seemed as though we were trying to protect our healthcare workers so much because quite frankly, there is a scarcity of us. We need more nurses, particularly. They were more worried about the nurses. So because they weren't able to hand out all of the PPE that they really were supposed to have been, we wound up compromising the patients. We wound up not treating them the way that they should have been treated initially when the pandemic broke out. And so what did that mean or what does that end up looking like? Essentially, somebody that should be needing some kind of treatment just doesn't get it or people are sort of left to not have that contact that would require that treatment. So it affected the outcome? No, it was more like we weren't treating appropriately. Basically, so what the rules were was is that there's a lot of different, I don't know, like uh, machinery, I guess you would say, to deliver oxygen. What we weren't allowed to do was go past six liters of nasal cannula, being we weren't allowed to give, you know, more oxygen than that, even though the patients required it. If they exceeded that number, then we would have to go straight to intubation, which is really wrong ethically from a nursing standpoint. I know Doctors are, you know, saying they have to cure the problem, blah, blah, blah. But nursing is a little different. So that's basically by doctor's orders what we were supposed to do, unfortunately. And that caused many more deaths than should have been. I agree with that. And can you go back to that? That's an interesting point that you brought up. So by nursing standards, that type of treatment or the protocol for that type of treatment being a very invasive thing, obviously, goes against nursing standards ethically. Explain what you mean by that. So not necessarily intubation is what's against ethics. It's just that, you know, if a patient's requiring more oxygen, we, you know, have the capability to give them other forms of increased oxygen, such as like a simple mask or a venti mask, 
a non-rebreather. We can even do, you know, like high flow machinery, large bore nasal cannula. There's like a lot of different methods that we can try before intubation to have these patients get the oxygen that they need. And it was really for like the first three or four weeks of the pandemic, we weren't allowed to do that. And the reason why is because they were worried about aerosolizing the virus to, you know, get us infected. And then there would be no nurses to care for these patients. But I don't know, ethically, I, it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it was just wrong. And do you think that the whole reason that fear was there, even on your part, not you personally, but for nurses and for the staff, was this media was hyping up what had happened in Italy, right? Right before New York happened. So everybody kind of saw this chaos in Italy and they just immediately thought, oh my God, now it's coming here to New York. This is going to happen everywhere. And it's just literally people were just thinking, you know, death and destruction so that there was that hyper-focus on PPE because they thought this virus was so contagious. If you got this, you were going to die. You're going to wind up on a ventilator not being able to breathe and you're going to die this horrible death. That was definitely the imagery that was put out in those early weeks. And it almost seems like that could easily have contributed to so much of these issues because the fear now went to the actual medical staff, the medical care staff, because they are watching this stuff on the news as well. And they don't know what kind of virus this is or how serious it is, but that was definitely being perpetuated, would you think? I can't really speak to that, but all I can really speak to is for whatever reason, whether it was because of fear, again, I don't have cable, so I don't watch what's on the news ever. So I don't really know. But what happened was they just took every single common sense practice and threw it out the window, maybe because of of an abundance of fear. Maybe, you know, there was a rationale, but the rationale didn't warrant what happened. It was a wrong rationale. It wasn't a properly practiced rationale. It, It made no sense, like, at all. So when you look back now, and here we are, you know, 2021, when you look back now to those early months, does it just seem, you know, illogical, I guess, on some levels that we responded the way that we did? A hundred percent. There have been so many practices and protocols put in place for nursing and doctors and for the whole hospital. And for some reason, those practices that have been working so well with all sorts of different other viruses and bacterias we said, oh, this is totally wrong. Even the way we put on our personal protective equipment, even the way we took off our personal protective equipment changed Hmm. and it should not have changed. That was wrong. It could have, you know, really spread the disease further. Everything that we did, it was like a reverse nursing, like everything you were taught in nursing school, everything you were practicing for every other virus, every other contact isolation room, or, you know, airborne isolation, whatever, it was backwards. It was wrong. The way we were donning and doffing the PPE, the way we were trained, we weren't practicing that way. So it caused even more confusion and chaos when it shouldn't have been. We should have just have been practicing exactly the way we've been practicing for God knows how long we've been practicing it. And that would have really stabilized a lot of the fear If we just had confidence in our practice, as it was, there would not have been this chaos, this fear, or this confusion. And it probably would have saved a lot of lives. 
And were other nurses talking about this with each other? Oh, yeah. hundred percent. And did you feel like you could not express those types of opinions, like within the actual work environment? Oh, God, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. But that's just who I am. I don't care. I, I you know, say it like it is. And it really brings a lot of other nurses to be able to speak their mind, you know, at least to me, because they know that we're, you know, we're not crazy. Like I'm saying, hey, we're not crazy. This is not how it's supposed to be. And most of the nurses are like, phew, thank God I can like speak. Hey, mm. yeah, you're right. Like I agree, you know, but yeah, I've always felt comfortable in expressing, you know, but I always have. But as a nurse, then, do you really not have a voice to say anything when you have these concerns? And I mean, is it you just sort of have to follow protocol? So while it was happening, yes, I pretty much just had to follow protocol, even though I was expressing myself. Mm -hmm. I can't go against my I can't go against orders. You know what I'm saying? I can express myself. I can say this is wrong. I could say I don't agree with this. I don't I don't you know whatever. But ultimately, the nurses and the doctors, they have basically a conversation with each other all the time. We're always in communication. You know, the nurse says something, the doctor explains why, or the doctor will say, oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe we could try it this way. You know, there's that relationship. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, if I were to go against orders, that would be putting my license on the line. And I would have to you know, get all sorts of people involved. And quite frankly, this whole thing was way too big for my one voice in my one practice to make any kind of change. But I do have to say with enough of us, you know, expressing ourselves, the practice changed very quickly within the first three to four weeks of the pandemic. So, you know, nursing and doctors also have spoke up, you know, and we're like, hey, wait a minute. uh uh-uh. So fortunately, again, after three or four weeks, it did change. And then after that first month or so in the panic and the chaos of all of it, when things started changing and the ventilators were not the first thing they were putting people on anymore, and and they started to listen to people treating this, as those next several months came, were people talking still about this, like what's going on with this or mask mandates or the surge or the new, you know, second wave or third wave or fourth wave that's supposed to come? Were people in the hospital talking about this, you know, healthcare workers about something doesn't seem right with this, or I don't know if these numbers are accurate or... Oh, yes. What were they saying? Well, here's the thing. It's like, you know, with the virus itself, I seen it right before my eyes mutate, right? So first it was just like the common cold, and then it was like the severe respiratory thing. And then it turned into this clotting, blood clotting thing. You know, and then it turned into just getting the elderly for some reason or, you know, the majority of Mm -hmm. the elderly. I don't want to say just the elderly, you know, and then it turned into the common cold again. And then it dissipated over the summer magically, like somehow numbers were wicked down. We actually closed our unit, the whole nine. And then we reopened. It was crazy. You know, so a lot of people were saying, oh, was it? really because of the virus or was it because, you know, a secondary effect to the virus? People were testing negative for the virus when they were positive and then all of a sudden they got a clot. And so did they really die of a heart attack or did they die of COVID? You know, it was, it was very, uh, I don't know, a gray area, blurred line to say the least. And do you think it still feels that way at this point? No, 
No, I, I don't. I don't think it's that way at this point. At this point, where do you think things are? Like, are we over this thing? Is it now just going to be cyclical or more mild or is something else going on? What do you think? I don't know. Our numbers are down in the hospital right now, like very down. I think we have 20 at most with COVID currently, you know, when we used to be at like 100, 100 plus. So I can't really answer that. I mean, again, I have my own opinions that's not within my medical scope. So Mm -hmm. as far as like my nursing scope, I don't know. Right now it's down. Right now the numbers are down. And is there still that same level of fear within the hospital about it? No. Oh, no, no, no. The majority of people are over it. You have a couple of sticklers, you know, that are like, oh, we can't let our guard down, you know, wear your mask, uh, double mask, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, no, we have to live. Like, fear will kill you worse than a virus. Trust me when I say that. Mm-hmm. I like that line. So... Looking back then, and we look at the protocols and the treatment, would you say that there is a possibility that medical mismanagement, and not just in your area, but in lots of areas, was responsible for the unnecessary death of people? Initially, yes. Like I said, for maybe the first three or four weeks, yes. But then we went back to normal practice, you know, normal standards of care, basically. And, you know, everybody will use the excuse, oh, well, we didn't know about this virus. We didn't know what it entailed, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, it is a coronavirus. We should be treating this virus just like any other virus, like we've been practicing forever and ever and ever. And especially if you don't know about it. If you don't know about it, practice your protocols until you learn about it. Right. You know, and it wound up being that. Just do what we should have been doing the whole time. And that first three to four weeks was really a a flub. It was really bad. Yeah, it was. And so now the end of the year of last year, the vaccine comes out and everybody kind of is assuming, you know, that this is going to be the savior to all of this. Within the hospital, was there pressure to get vaccinated or has there been pressure? Currently, no. Currently, no. At least not at my hospital. But again, you know, I think a lot of hospitals are not pushing it because we know, we know it's experimental. We know it's not FDA approved. The hospitals and the hospital's lawyers should definitely know that uh, you can't do that (laughs) to your employees, especially everybody who's in the medical field. Obviously we know too. So no, not right now. In the next two years, do I expect it? Yes. And so obviously there's been a lot of people saying, oh, you know, vaccine reactions can't happen or they don't happen. There are no real side effects or, oh, that's just a sign that it's working. What do you say to that? Well, that's very ignorant. People really need to get educated because vaccine reactions are real and underreported. There is VAERS. Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. Yes, thank you. Really, medical professionals should be reporting any sort of adverse reactions. I know that when the vaccine first came out, they were holding people for about 15 minutes or a half an hour, you know, just to see if they had a reaction, which that's not enough time. I mean, reactions happen like hours after the vaccine or days after the vaccine. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't report it. A lot of people don't go to their doctors and a lot of people don't know that they can report it to VAERS themselves without any sort of medical, 
I don't know, advisory or anything. So yes, I think it's very ignorant to say that, you know, vaccine reactions don't happen. They do. And it's only reported in about 1% of the population who, who get a vaccine. That's really our only reporting system and people don't utilize it. And of course, that affects the data and statistics as we talk about things like safe and effective, because if people are not reporting and don't know that they can report, then there's a difference there with how safe something really is and how often somebody's reacting to something. You mentioned to me at the beginning of this that you are currently involved in a nursing commission or executive commission. Can you explain a little bit about what you're doing with that in the political committee that you're involved with? Oh, yeah. So we have, you know, I'm a part of a union. It's NISNA. So we have an executive committee at Vassar and I'm the communications chair. And again, it's just for union stuff. So, you know, we talk to our chief nursing officer on a regular basis, the um, assistant nursing chief officers. You know, we, we discuss about things that go on in the hospital. And, you know, it was for a very big period. We were talking about a surge plan. Like, what's our surge plan? Do we have a written surge plan, you know, just in case we get another surge for COVID? Basically, we were part of a very wide network of other hospitals. So they basically said, well, we'll just send them to the sister hospitals. I'm like, okay. So again, I don't really know what the plan is for PPE. If, you know, a second wave were to happen, we don't really know. We don't have any detailed written plan. They might have one, but we haven't seen it yet. And then you were mentioning also dealing with legislation and whatnot on the political level. How does that work or what is your involvement with that? Right. So I'm a part of the Hudson Valley Political Action Team for NISNA. And basically what we do is we endorse local legislators that will support the nurses and support our staffing ratios. We just got a bill passed for safe staffing, which is great. I'm not too sure if the governor has signed it yet at this point or not, but we're actively involved in that. It was basically for staffing, proper staffing ratios, patient to nurse ratios, not really for anything COVID related yet. I don't really know. Well, I was going to say that was my next question. What happens if legislation comes down the pipeline that is going to involve nursing staff to be vaccinated and that be a requirement of an employment? Well, quite honestly, that, okay, so we, are required to be vaccinated for other things in the hospital. But again, I don't really know how that could be a possibility because there are things like religious exemption, medical exemption to not have to poison ourselves. And there's also a federal law that prevents anybody in the healthcare industry that if they don't want injections as a condition of employment, they don't have to. So I don't really know how that's going to work legally. I can't imagine that it would work if they tried. But again, I'm a big advocate for stuff like that. So so what would you say to the other nurses, I'll, I'll wrap it up with this, that want to get involved or maybe other nurses that are in New York that want to be a part of helping have a voice for nurses and have, you know, maintain the, the freedoms in many different levels for nurses, how would you direct them to be able to get involved? And this could be true for nurses in other states as well. So what you could do is you can call, email, and essentially harass, not really harassing, but, you know, make your voices heard to your local legislators who 
write the bills, co-sponsor these bills, your assemblymen, your state senators, definitely make your voice known. And then how could they get involved personally to connect with other nurses? Is there some type of network where they can come together and realize, hey, there are other nurses that are willing to speak out on some of these things and I want to get connected to them? Personally, I don't know of any groups uh, <laughs> like that. I would basically just, you know, express yourself. You live in a free country, regardless of what your occupation is. You have rights to your own body. And, you know, as a nurse, you really also need to advocate for yourself, how you want to help yourself health-wise, medically, how you want to help your patients, and how you want to help the community at large. You know, there's all different types of nursing. There's preventative nursing, there's community nursing, there's acute nursing, which is in the hospital, and they all require different cares. So if you think, hey, you know, we're trying to instill you know, acute care practices in a communal setting, that's not how we do things. Speak up. I like it. And I think that's an important thing for everybody to be paying attention to. Make sure you do not stay silent. And it doesn't matter if you're in the minority of the opinions. It's important. There'd be a lot of other people probably feeling the same way that don't necessarily have the courage to say anything. And that's why this is so important. And I really appreciate your time, Chelsea, for being able to kind of weigh in on some of this stuff with your unique experience. And hopefully you'll tune in and listen and be able to hear other nurses too that are sharing their stuff, their opinions and experiences as well. And uh, you can find a little solace knowing that a lot of other people feel the same way across the country. Well, thank you very much for having me and getting my voice out there. So Chelsea, if people want to contact you, how do they get in touch with you? You can email me. You can find me on Facebook. Okay, so now on your Facebook, what's your account name? Chelsea Patton. Last name is spelled P-A-T-T-O-N. First name is Chelsea. Okay, perfect. Thanks again, Chelsea, for your time. Thank you.